Good morning. How are you doing? How's your daily practice going? No? You good? I, you know, when people say, okay, but they shake their heads this way, it means not well. We gave it up. We quit. Um, okay. Whether you are here in person or online, let's just take a minute and just get here. If it helps to close your eyes, do so. May grace be in our heads and in our thinking. May grace be in our eyes and in our seeing. May grace be in our ears and in our hearing. May grace be in our mouths and in our speaking. May grace be in our hearts and in our understanding. And may grace be at our ends and at our departing. So no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are celebrated here. I got good news and bad news. The good news is that I managed to register for the Enneagram seminar that will be this, this in Saturday week, two weeks. I just registered this week because I'm a procrastinator. What Enneagram is that? Hmm? What Enneagram Usually a nine. I'm a seven. But aren't I'm, nines the procrastinators? Huh? Aren't nines the procrastinators? Nines are unifiers, pretty yeah, but they're much. They're also a bit like slow moving. Slow moving? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people say Jesus was a nine. Oh, yeah. But if you've watched any of the, uh, the Chosen, you know one of the favorite words he says to his disciples is soon. When are we going to do that? Soon. Sounds like what a mom says. Yeah, soon. Someday. Oh, my father said, we'll see. We'll see. We'll yeah. see. Oh, gosh. We'll see. Anyway, so the good news, I got registered. And the bad news is, if you haven't, it's too late. It's sold out. Mm -hmm. And I predicted early on that this event would sell out. And so I don't know because I didn't check with Tim. Wait, wait, wait. Was that an I told you so? Huh? I predicted that this would sell out. Was that an I told you so? Yeah. Okay. Just making that clear. <laughs> Is that not an okay thing to do? It's a totally okay thing to do. <laughs> so, all right. Anyway, uh, Suzanne Sibyl is going to be here, and I did not check with Tim, and he's not paying attention. So, um, I don't know whether you, if you register, you can still be on, to watch it online or not. Uh, but he just told me this morning we're full, we're capacity for in-person, so uh, we'll check that out and put out, for those of you who are watching far away, I'm glad you're here, um, it, it, what possibility you have of registering and, and see. Um, there was a lot of conversation at the happy hour last night about the Enneagram and 
its usefulness or lack thereof and <laughs> all of that. And so I think it's going to be fun. One of the things that I remember that Suzanne Stabile did at the workshop that we attended with her some time ago, and Holly's done this with somebody, and that is you've been on the stage with other sixes. Holly's the six. And um, a counterphobic six. Meaning that she is supposed to be frightened, but she's scared of nothing. That's right. I'm the, I'm the loyal skeptic. I will follow the calls, but I'll question it all the way down. <laughs> I bet you're six. Probably. <laughs> because that, those are characteristics that she just said that Mark Wayne, mm. loyal we can, skeptic. We have wings. Hmm? We have strong wings, too. Yeah. Yes, that was with the two women who came some years ago. I can't remember their names right now, but. Helen Palmer, was she here? I can't remember their names right now. Well, anyway, uh, uh, one of the things that you will see is that um, maybe she will get uh, five sevens on the stage at one time to talk about how, seven, how we experience being a seven and uh, maybe fives and what that like. Because just because you are a certain number doesn't mean that you're exactly like somebody else who has the same number. Don? How high are the numbers? One through nine. My number is six two. Six two. Oh, there you go. <laughs> you're off the charts, Don. <laughs> oh. So um, let's jump into what's on the menu today. I hope it's, there's something that's satisfying for you. The, the talks that you have been hearing in here for the last several weeks are riffs on the Lord's Prayer. And um, this is the third time around in ordinary life to do the Lord's Prayer. I, as you know, am fascinated with words and word origins. And the word riff is one of those words that came into the language as something that it sounds like. It's an onomatopoeia word, right? You learned that word in grammar school, right, onomatopoeia, a word that sounds like what it is. And riff is supposed to sound like the water that's in a brook that's running across stones. You know, if you hear a, I called it, I called it a babbling brook, but it's riff, it has that riff. And riff uh, became a verb to riffle something and uh, in gambling or card playing, a riffle shuffle of the deck of cards is a, is a, sounds like a riffle, you know. And it's uh, most, the card experts say that if you take a brand new deck of cards and shuffle it seven times, you have to shuffle it seven times to get it into um, really truly mixed order. Hmm. And, um, so then the word riff started to be used in jazz music when a soloist in the jazz ensemble would take part of the melody and would go off and do something special on it. So we're doing riffs on the Lord's Prayer. And where we are up to is this um, phrase, Thou, who, our, our Father who art in heaven. One of my professors in seminary, a guy from Germany, Helmut Thielicke was his name. I haven't checked to see if he is still alive or not, but he wrote a number of books, one on the Trinity. And um, as with many of the theologians of that era, came from Germany. And 
Dr. Tillico was fond of saying, he who does not dare a heresy cannot gain the truth. And of course, that appealed to me. <laughs> so um, what I'm about to say may be considered a heresy, but I'd like for you to stick around and not just bolt out of class, keep an open mind until we're done. But I think using this phrase that you see on your screen is both a disservice to God and to our own spiritual identity and growth. Because it objectifies God and displaces God out there, which is not helpful to us. And my own contribution to this is to say that since there is only and always God, seeking God is not only a guaranteed way of not experiencing God, but it's also a major theological error or heresy. If I'm seeking God, I'm implying I'm not already in the presence of God or that God is not already inhabiting my being. Get that? So our spiritual task is to work at awareness, not seeking. Mm -hmm. So um, that's my heretical contribution for the day. I like how in the notes you had a line that said, so far I've gotten through our and father. So today we're on who? <laughs> <laughs> I just think it was going to take a while. Just the first line will take the next four weeks. Um, well, that's the way I'm guaranteed a job. Just if I just it stretch words, it out for as long as I can. We're just going to say who? All, the whole class. Ready? No, excuse me. Um, oh, good. <laughs> Not a bad idea. That was a riff, by the way. Um, so when Bill and I teach together, one of the ways that we prepare for this time is that we talk for about an hour a day, sometimes more, usually not less. <laughs> right. <laughs> and you can imagine these aren't always linear conversations. Bill, Bill does Bill, um, and I probably do Holly. <laughs> and, and, and so not everything that we say gets said in here. because some Not of everything is, we say can get said. Not everything that we say can get said in here. Um, <clears throat> But for Callista's sake, um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, but there's, there's this balance between what we need to say, what we need to get off our chests in this pre preparation time, and then how to sum it up or bring it together in a way that can be received and related to. And we acknowledge wholeheartedly that what we say might be equal parts exhilarating and terrifying to hear that the opening line of the Lord's Prayer, probably one of the most ubiquitous and taken for granted pieces of scripture, is hearsay. So sit with that for a minute. Just kind of ask, are you terrified? Are you exhilarated? Are you indifferent? Are you curious? I'm sure I've felt all of those things at different times, and maybe all at once. And I think part of this kind of excavating our faith traditions, the things we've grown up with, have taken for granted, that are just kind of automatically said, 
is necessary in order to be defeated, as you'll find out in a minute, by ever greater things. In the meantime, I do want to give you something to hold on to. <laughs> However we define God, sacred mystery, cosmic order, reality, you choose. It actually is out there. But we can't keep it there because it also comes back in here. It's this constant reciprocal dance between what's out there and what's in here and then what happens in between. We, we have to resist this kind of distant clockmaker God, the Aristotelian God. We can not even put our faith in this kind of intervening lightning rod God who responds to some but not to all. These are the parts that we're excavating. Whatever we attribute to this great mystery that connects everything is here, right here, right now. It's out there, and it's in you. And it's changing all of the time. This rabbi, David Cooper, wrote a book called God is a Verb. God is not a noun. God is a verb. God's not just breath, but breathing. And right now, breathing through you is an exchange happening between you and the air around you and the air that somebody else is breathing that you're now inhaling. It's, it's a constant movement. It's not stagnant or changeless. All of these things are in symbiotic relationship with every realm of reality. This can start to sound a little woo-woo, right? <laughs> And I kind of love the woo-woo, so I'm, I'm cool with that. There's a permeable membrane between us and everything else, an exchange of energy that includes both self-emptying and then self-knowing, an emptying and a filling. And maybe we do a little bit of that every day. We empty, we fill, we empty, we fill. As long as we place God out there, I think we'll remain afraid of what's in here. And I think many of us, myself included at times, are daunted by the self-knowing part. And I, I could just be projecting, but I want to encourage us that, that Marianne Williamson, she ran for president in 2020. I understand she's on the ballot again for 2024. She has this kind of big mega church that is an, it, it's, its doctrine is inclusivity. And during 2020, I just remember she was written off relatively quickly because she talked a lot about the need for more love. Not a bad message. But she says, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. And your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. However you say that language, insert it. The glory of everything is within you. It's not just in some of us, but it's in everyone and everything. And as long as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our fear, our presence liberates others. So that's the message we want you to hear in part, that you have something powerful beyond measure in you that is in constant dialogue with everything else. 
And to truly know this thing, there are some other things that we need to allow ourselves to be defeated by. So that phrase, allow ourselves to be defeated by, is something that I got from the poet uh, Rainier uh, Maria Rilke in a poem that he wrote uh, called A Man Watching. I got introduced to the poetry of Rilke by Robert Johnson, um, the Jungian analyst who died a few years ago, who was teacher to me, and um, he helped so much of um, my understanding about Christian theology from a Jungian perspective. He was a very valuable teacher. Um, and he used Rilke as an example of someone who um, had been wounded in the world but did not allow his wounds to define him in a negative way. And I can remember Robert saying that we all get wounded in the process of our growing up. And some of us learn to live with our wounds neurotically, and some of us learn to live with our wounds heroically. And uh, when Sherry and I were doing the re relationship seminar, it used to be called marriage seminar, but that became politically incorrect to say. I quoted him a lot because Rilke has a definition of love where he says, for one human being to love another is perhaps the most difficult task of all, the epitome, the ultimate cost. It is that striving for which all other striving is merely preparation. And I love that definition. Now, I know there are people here who think that you had a hard time growing up that your parents or your primary caretakers or your institutions were unfair to you and uh, hurt you in some way. Um, it's just amazing how frequently that happens. Um, to, I want to tell you Rilke's story so that you might have a way um, to just compare your own family of origin story with Rilke's family of origin story. When Rilke was born, his mother had just suffered the loss of a three-and-a-half-year-old girl child. And she was grieving the loss of that child. And so she raised Rilke, whose given name is also Maria, as a girl. Dressed him in girl clothes, treated him as a girl. And Rilke's father wanted to be a career military person, but he had a failed career in the military. So he went to work for the railroad and got in some official capacity where he lived a railroad uh, person's life as if he was an army officer and he was gone most of the time. He retired from that job when Rilke was 12. Now Rilke had spent the first 12 years of his life being raised as a girl. His father came home and said, hmm, this is not a good idea. So took Rilke from that position and put him in military school. Now you can imagine what that must have been like for this 12-year-old boy. And yet out of that, Rilke produced this incredible body of beautiful meaningful poetry and advice to others. And, and uh, Robert used Rilke by saying that you will find that people who live heroically with their wounds, 
many of them become great teachers, great artists, and great healers. And so I would certainly put Rilke in the position of being uh, a great um, artist. So I want to read you a poem that came to me since we met last week called The Man Watching. I've, I've read it 30, 40 times, I'm sure, in my life, but I came across it again this week, and it's called The Man Watching. I can see that the storms are coming by the trees, which out of stale, lukewarm days beat against my anxious windows. And I can hear the distances say things one can't bear without a friend, can't love without a sister. Then the storm swirls, a rearranger swirls through the woods and through time and everything as if it were without age. The landscape, like a verse in the Psalter, is weight and ardor and eternity. How small that is with which we wrestle. What wrestles with us? How immense. Were we to let ourselves, the way things do, be conquered thus by the great storm, we would become far-reaching and nameless. What we triumph over is the small, and the success itself makes us petty. The eternal and unexampled will not be bent by us. Think of the angel who appeared to the wrestlers of the Old Testament when his opponent's sinews in that context stretch like steel. He feels them under his fingers as strings making deep melodies. Whoever was overcome by this angel, who so often declined the fight, he strides erect and justified and great out of that hard hand which, as if sculpting, nestled around him. Winning does not tempt him. His growth is to be the deeply defeated by ever greater things. His growth is to be the deeply defeated by ever greater things. You knew I was going to love that poem. I hope so. Yeah. Well, it's about Jacob wrestling the angel to it's a It's so great. Yeah, and I love that story. Well, you know, yeah. when I read it this time, I thought immediately of you about the your favorite biblical story. That's Jacob and the angel. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm, so that's part of why I love it. <laughs> when I read it this week, I, I, I felt the wrestling, but I also felt wrestled with. You know, what does it mean to be defeated by ever greater things, and I admittedly have been feeling a bit defeated. And I think that's precisely the point, that to feel that is to be wrestled with and maybe to be refilled. But there are three things we sort of wrapped our time together around three things, not the only three things, but maybe just three things, <laughs> that we propose we allow ourselves to be defeated by. Just a place to start. One is the fear of losing. The second is the delusion that we are separate and that life is elsewhere. And the third is greater compassion and love. I'll speak to the first one, the fear of losing. We live in a culture that's addicted to winning. We bet on sports, we run long races, we play the lottery. We're constantly outpacing even our own selves. I can do better, I can do better, I can do better. We are our most serious competition. And let's face it, winning is fun. 
it comes with this charge and adrenaline rush and this on top of the world feeling. I, as an athlete growing up, I loved winning. And one of the most exhilarating nights of my recent adult life was attending game six of the 2022. Well, you knew I was gonna say something about baseball, Gloria. And you know, here we are, standing room only, upper deck, beer poured all over us in celebration, hugging every stranger in sight. One man was just weeping by the bar because he was so excited and he only spoke Spanish. And I said, que pasa? We won in Spanish. And he was like, I've never been in this moment before. Winning does that to us. It makes us feel things. So does losing. <laughs> but of course this was an exhilarating moment. My team won, right? I would not have been so excited if we lost. I wouldn't have been like, oh, that was great, right? <laughs> we love to win. In the story around which the poem centers, though, Jacob loses. He loses hard. He comes away with a limp that trails him for the rest of his days. And the losing is necessary to the story. It's necessary to his transformation. Jacob did not want to lose. He fought mightily against the angel. And through the night, and I imagine that up to the very end, he was rather upset that he was losing. But once he allowed himself to be defeated by this ever greater thing, winning no longer tempted him. He was changed. There's another story in the Christian scriptures, so the Jacob and the angel story comes from the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. And this story in the Christian scriptures is also about losing, and in this story, the merchant, I think you know where I'm going, chooses to lose. I'm talking, of course, about the pearl of great price. Rabbi Amy Jill Levine, she was here in March of 2022. She spoke right here in this room. She has this little book that I just discovered. I can't remember when it was written, called Short Stories by Jesus. <laughs> I love that cheeky little title. Um, she writes that we can read these stories in several different ways. We can read them literally. We can read them allegorically in which they are uh, prescribed to traditional Christian understandings of scripture. We can read them historically and critically. But if we don't read them metaphorically or experientially, we're missing something. We're missing their depth and their breadth. If we domesticate them, this is her line, if we domesticate Jesus' stories, we'll neither be challenged nor disturbed by their potential. I've been meditating on this pearl story for some time, and some pretty rich visuals have come from it recently. It's essentially that when the merchant finds the pearl, he's searching for pearls, but he finds the one, he sells everything he owns to obtain it. He's willing to lose. He chooses to lose everything. He, in the context of Judaism, this Pearl is an interesting and very unlikely choice because pearls weren't kosher. They, they come from shellfish. They're mentioned in the script, Christian scriptures only a handful of times and several times as an admonishment to women to not wear them because we'll be too seductive and tempting. They're also mentioned as the chosen decor of heaven's pearly gates. Okay? And then we're cautioned not to cast them before swine because pearls are so worthy they're one of the most fine and luminous jewels. One of two made from a, from a living creature. The other one is coral. Typically when they're farmed, the oyster or the conch, I'd, I'd 
only just learned that the queen conch produces a pink pearl. These really rare, and, and there aren't that many left because they were so over-farmed by dignitaries and queens for so long. The queens wanted them, these pearls of great price. Anyway, the, the oyster or the conch usually dies in the farming of the pearl. If left alone, the oyster can produce multiple pearls over a, a single lifetime, but when farmed, they, are di they die in order to obtain these jewels. The conch is now a threatened species because of overfishing. Significant to me and significant to Rilke's life and to the poem that Bill read, pearls are formed from an initial wound. Embedded inside the layers of knacker is, a, is an irritant, maybe a grain of sand, a single grain of sand, debris of some kind, and the, harden, the knacker hardens around it. It's a scab. I wonder if this isn't why the merchant was willing to lose everything for this pearl. He's wondering if he can create beauty out of brokenness, if he can learn to live heroically with a wound. Is not the point then to ask ourselves, this is a little collage that I've made through these meditations, what are we willing to lose in order to discover our own pearl of great price? What these two stories have in common, Jacob and the pearl, is that they're not based merely on ideas, thinking about something, but on experiences. The experience of losing. So, I want to go back to the Astros winning. <laughs> yeah, they're not doing so good right now, so um, I don't want to spend too much time on it. <laughs> you know, I, I um, the team that lost was not that mindset. Nope. And um, I can get suckered in, as I did last night, to watching football on television. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was nothing on TV last night after we came home from happy hour. So I'm going through the log looking for various things. Finally found a football game that seemed interesting was Brigham Young and Arkansas, as you saw that game. It was a close game. Uh, then I'm always for the underdog when they're playing a game, you know. So I think it's a good thing to do, be for the underdog. Mm. And so um, Brigham Young won in a call game at the very very last, the referees on the field had to say game's over and because it was just that close to Arkansas pulling out of the fire. And I noticed that all the energy the Brigham Young um, football team and fans felt, and they were so energetic and everything, and all the Arkansas fans were. Yeah. Like that. yeah. The Brigham Young team looked like they could play another game. And you wondered if the Arkansas team was going to be able to make it to the locker room. Same game, same amount of energy, but what was in their mind about that? And I have been feeling very like I'm on the losing team lately about a lot of stuff. Mm. I don't like what's going on in our culture. I don't like what's going on in Christian nationalism and all that sort of stuff. And it is dispiriting. It is de-energizing. That's why the Rilke poem spoke so much to me that there is energy to be found in the being defeated by greater things. Get it? Mm -hmm. It ain't easy, but that's what we're gonna talk about now. Well, the beautiful thing about sports and that I think athletes have to learn is that regardless of what happens in that moment, they have to go out again the next day or the next week. You know, like 
the loss or the win has to be set aside. Right. So this every day we begin again kind of thing, right? So uh, uh, and it is our goal and hope that you leave here feeling energized, not dispirited. <laughs> don't, don't, don't. Uh, because in a lot of ways, we don't look like we're on the winning team, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. There are very few books that I read more than once. I reread Always We Begin Again on a regular basis. I reread uh, Living and Examined Life by Jim Hollis once a year. You should, too. I'm being bossy now. <laughs> but Hollis wrote this book to be used in part of your daily spiritual practice. 21 chapters. You can read a chapter in less than 10 minutes of living and examined life. It's really worth your time to read this book and reread it and read it again and mark it and keep a journal about it and so forth. The book that I am rereading that... Um, many of you have read it called Braiding Sweetgrass. Now, some of you remember when, because uh, one of you gave me some sweetgrass, which you have to have as a gift. You can't buy it. You're not supposed mm. to buy it. You can buy it, but you're not supposed to. Um, you, you, you will remember when Holly and I were teaching and we were reading that book. We were quoting it every week. Uh, for a while. And thinking, you know, there is stuff in this book. If only we did, like the great Thanksgiving, it's just, so wonderful and uh, I'm really enjoying reading the book again it's just so good and um, Kimmerer who is a botanist a Native American uh, and, and she just braids various ways of knowing into the telling of her story that she thinks that if we heed what she has to say it can heal the rift that has grown between humans and the earth and between us as well. And I was quite moved the first time I read the book, and I still am. The, the book is filled with such obvious lessons and truths as well as very powerful metaphors. Mm -hmm. You remember the cleaning of the pond yep. that she bought? And uh, she, uh, there's not my notes, but you should read the book. It's really, but one of the first things that struck me this time about reading the book was the difference in origin stories that's, that different cultures have. And the, the origin story uh, in that Native Americans have, at least the tribes that she is part of, is the story of Sky Woman. And Sky Woman falls from the sky and creates a garden. Sky Woman goes into the earth and out of, the, out of Sky Woman comes all the plants, the three sisters' plants, corn, beans, and squash, and people. And Sky Woman says to the creatures that she creates, including humans, here's a gift. I want to give you this garden. It's a gift It will take care of you. Take care of the garden and take care of all else that lives in the garden with you. That's such a wonderful story. And that's their origin story. That's where you come from. Now, I want you to compare that with the origin story that we have. Even people who do not participate in organized religion know the story because it affects our entire culture. The story says that we were 
humans were created and placed in a garden where we were given an impossible to keep command, the breaking of which causes us to be driven from the garden, and the consequence is that we have to work to get back in the garden by dominating the earth and competing with each other. And the message that we got from that is that you're sinful and you're no good. That's our origin story. That was Aristotle's contribution. That is our origin story. It is in the West. Now, if you think that that origin story doesn't affect us, three of the great destructive archetypes that drive us come from this story. One is that of patriarchy and the flawed nature of the feminine. Who started all this trouble? Eve, who was created as subservient anyway. She came from the rib of Adam. He wanted more, but when he asked God what it would cost him, he said an arm and a leg. And <laughs> said, what can I get for a rib? That's not in my notes. That's a seven. But that's what a seven would say. Yeah. This is one of the great, great negative archetypes. Who runs the country? Old white guys. And, and, and are they running the country in a way that seems to be benefiting everybody? The second archetype is that there is something inherently wrong with being human, and we can only correct this by winning over others. So we're at odds with each other. I gotta watch my back when I'm around you. And I need to be better in one way or another. And then the way that we find security is through redemptive violence. So we entertain ourselves. Um, and I'm not unmindful that the way I entertained myself last night was watching incredible violence on the football field. It's a violent sport. And then we have all of these things about murders. We got into watching Father Brown on PBS. I subscribed to BritBox so I could watch the whole series. Father Brown lives in the most dangerous village in England. <laughs> the most dangerous village in England. There's a murder there every week. There's like eight people in the village, too. Yeah. Dangerous, <laughs> bad people you. in the village. <laughs> Now, here's the thing. Both of these stories are human fabrications. They, were, they didn't come out of the sky, and the humans made them up. And you have to think, which is the wisest story, a wiser story, a more useful story than the one that we are living with? We need to be defeated by a better story of who we are and, and how we get here. Now, there, I, I want to I say, there have been flashes of brilliance in both Jewish and Christian history that have acknowledged this. The, the prophets in Jewish history are an example of this. St. Francis is an example of this. Jesus is an example of this. But that's not what is won today in terms of the organization of how we experience and express our religion. So if we do not allow ourselves to be defeated 
by the fact that we are siblings and that we have a responsibility to take care of this place and all that live upon it, then we're going to participate in our own being defeated by a cosmic law that's called the need for cooperation. Mm. One of the beautiful pieces of Robin Wall Kemmerer's writing is that she's writing through her own indigeneity. She is um, part Native American, part European, part, so, so she's writing through her own identity. And part of what she arrives at is that indigeneity, to belong to something, to be from a place, is to care about the well-being of all things. So we become indigenous when we start to care about all things. And there's a, we talked a little bit this week about there's also this, this scene that she paints where in the middle of the night she goes with, I think, her one of her daughters to rescue salamanders off the road who, are, who hatch from eggs on one side of the road and must crawl to the other side to get to where they live, to the water. And, and the cars just run right over them. And so she would go out every year on the birth of the salamanders and take them from one side to the other. That's being indigenous to a place, caring about the well-being of all things. And I, I just I love that definition. And even though these are the archetypes that have been destructive, there are other interpretations to these available. You know, Aristotle won the day a bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, Augustine won the day, right? His, he really, he really uh, amplified the original sin story. Out of his own troubled life. His own love of his mother that he couldn't have. He was in love with his mother. He wrote her love letters, and he felt like, why am I in love with my mother? And so it must be a sin. She must be making me sin. That's my psychoanalytic interpretation. I'll see you after class if you have questions. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but just, you know, we have other stories available to us. There are other interpretations. But because of what one, we don't always have access to these, to these other ways of thinking. So I'd like to think that when we attend to our wounds, when including the cultural wounds, the cultural stories that we've been told, when we're willing to lose something that once held great meaning for us but is no longer working, and be humbled by the forces that keep us from flying apart, we inevitably discover greater compassion and love. The crux of my dissertation was about this, the need to examine the ways we have been wounded and the ways we have also done wounding in order to create a more just and loving world. And there's no transformation without loss. Jacob shows us this. The, per the merchant shows us this. There's no life without dying. There's no light without darkness. There's no unity without diversity. I don't know where each of you is today or what you are uniquely holding, but I do know this. You're not alone, even when the going is lonely. You are not alone. You are held right now by the ever greater things. It's tempting for me to want to bypass all of the holding and the, and the difficulty and the sitting in the dark and offer just hope and kind of palliative happiness. 
But I also don't want to bypass the importance of waiting, of, of sitting in the dark, of being with the loss, of the time it takes for the pearl to become beautiful. For an oyster, this can be anywhere between six months and years. So sometimes we have to sit with the wounds for a while. And we're, we're wired for this. Everything that grows begins in darkness. A seed, something smaller. I just read a poem last night that a seed is smaller than, most seeds are smaller than my nail. And they grow into these beautiful oak trees outside. And they grow in the dark. They grow with light, but they start in the dark. A bird comes out of a dark shell. A pearl comes out of the oyster or the conch. A human comes out of the dark womb into the world. We're wired not just for being formed and transformed in the dark, but for being part of everything, to really experience this reciprocity. Robin Wallkimmer talks a lot about reciprocity as a value. This is the hopeful and happy message. You were made to do more than just survive your wounds. You were made to become beautiful because of them. If I could change one thing about Western society, US culture, it would be our hyper-focus on individualism, on winning and outdoing and dominating. Again, I love to win. I, I love sports. I love them because there's some some triumph at the end, and there's also loss at the end. But that's not all there is. I'd just like to remind us that our evolution is communal, not individual. My, my favorite, uh, one of my favorite psychologists, Fritz Kunkel, someone I had never heard of before about three years ago, he writes all about this need for a stronger sense of we. We have a very strong I, a very strong me. But we don't, as a culture, have a very strong we. And none of us can do this alone. We are only ever in reciprocity with everything else. And I think the question is whether or not we choose to recognize it. You know, the, the, the more that I read and study, the more I am convinced that what made the early Christian movement successful was exactly what you're talking about. That and Jesus created communities of people or the people who followed him created communities where they took care of each other. Mm -hmm. And, and um, you know, we've got ways of dissing that by saying it's too idealistic, it wouldn't work here and all that. But the fact is that for 300 years, um, it became a model that won over other ways of being yeah. in the culture. So it's a possibility, and and um, we just made this huge, and it's in the Lord's Prayer. It's not only a possibility, it is reality. It's that we think it's not reality. We think it's all up oh, to Right. Us. Yeah. And yeah. We, we confuse what Jesus wanted to create as a community of empowerment with a kingdom out there somewhere mm -hmm. that you get to. You know, I heard, um, I think it was Jim Hollis one time say in a lecture that um, if there is an afterlife, he's looking forward to it, <laughs> that he would get to be with people that, you know, his parents, his son that died before him and all that, he's looking forward to it, but it wouldn't be this life. It's not just this life extended. 
right? So they're really different. I don't want to get, get into that. <laughs> My records show that I began to hear a theme in 2018 called Between the Longer and the Not Yet. And I think of all the talks or themes that I've done over the long years in ordinary life, this is the one that's gotten the most response. I'm sorry I retarded. I wish it were still visible. It's still where we are. Whether it's stated this way or not, we're between an order that is passing away where people go into, many people, not all of you, but many people go into institutes of organized religion and they don't find what's on the menu nourishing. So they don't go. And I think that's one of the ways that organized religion shoots itself in the foot. Uh, we don't have what is yet to come, but I believe that there is that there, there are ways of structuring a new story, a new origin story, a new way of identifying and behaving that would be very helpful. Um, I, I, I am saddened by the fact that organized religion seems to be the last in line when it comes to realizing that we no longer live in the not yet. That's one of the appeals of the current political movement of Make America Great Again. It's nostalgic looking back to something that never really existed, but if we could just get there, then we would be happy. So um, when we use this phrase, uh, our Father who art in heaven, that's a phrase that's not in the Gospel of Luke, which is the shortest version of the Lord's Prayer. Um, the version in Matthew actually begins with this phrase, our Father in heaven. Um, we're uttering words that we either cannot or should not, this is my opinion, you'll have to make your own, are wise and useful. They belong to the no longer. And we needed to be defeated by something bigger than that. I had a most interesting experience this past week that I want to share with you. I was visiting with a man in, uh, who's in home hospice care. This guy's not a religious person. He's not even, I think, someone who would describe himself as a spiritual person. Um, I don't know how much longer he has on this earth. He's very, very bright, very uh, able to be engaged, just very, very limited in his physical well-being. And uh, so we got together, and he said, um, so I want you to tell me. Um, I usually ask, you know, what would be helpful, what would be useful for us to spend our time, that sort of thing. And she said, he said, I want you to tell me, what do you know for sure? He said, not what you think, not what you feel, not what you believe, but what do you know for sure? Now, I don't know how you would answer that question, but it kind of caught me off guard. <laughs> well, I know that if we keep treating the earth like we're doing it, we're going to kill the earth. I know that. And... Um, I know that if we continue on the same political path we're following right now, the America that I grew up knowing and hoping would be there is going to go away. I know that. 
and that the, my hope for my children and grandchildren is greatly diminished because of that. And, and those two things not only make me anxious, they make me sad, they make me feel defeated. And that's another reason that I felt thought about Rilke's poem. We needed to be uh, being defeated by greater things. And folks, I'd like to be part of that defeating, you know, being defeated by greater things. I hope that what we do in here contributes to that kind of defeat that can energize that. But after sitting with my response for a while, um, I told him, I said, I'd like to modify what I said. I said, the one thing that I know for absolute certain is that nothing lasts. I, I recall and told Holly about one of my early teachers, George Jordy, whom you all heard me talk about frequently. I love George. And George had a typical way of responding when he would greet people or he would say, how you doing? And somebody would say, I'm not doing very good or whatever. And George would say, don't worry, it won't last. <laughs> or if you said to George, he'd say, how you doing? I'd say, man, I'm doing great. He'd say, don't worry, it won't last. <laughs> and then he would just laugh. One of the things I was attracted to him was how he laughed. <laughs> so um, I think that our, uh, one of our temptations, and Holly mentioned this about individuality, and I think one of our temptations is to live superficially and, and to have stupid compassion. And we need, need to be defeated by greater compassion. Now, I'm going to give you an example of greater compassion compared with <laughs> stupid compassion, okay? Marion Woodman, I don't know if you've ever heard of her. You have heard of Marion. Yeah. You love her. Uh -huh. Marion Woodman was a union analyst from Canada. She trained in Zurich, and she, her first book was called Addicted to Perfection, if any of you want, and sevens need a book to read. Um, that would be a good one. Hi. She died about four years ago. She was a brilliant woman, a strong feminist and a bunch of other things. You can look her up on Wikipedia and, and find out about her. Uh, she was a poet, author, analytical psychologist. She was a women's movement figure. So anyway, when people would contact Marion Woodman and say, say, I want to come and be in therapy with you, she would say, okay, to be in therapy with me, you need to commit to an hour a day to recording your dreams, keeping a journal, reading, and carrying out my assignments. An hour a day. And if they said, well, gee, I'm, I don't have time my schedule for doing that, she'd say, that's fine. Let me refer you to someone else. You're not prepared to work with me. That's strong compassion. In, in, in Buddhism, in Zen Buddhism, there's what's called Grandmother Zen. And Grandmother Zen says, eat that extra piece of pie, have that extra drink, sleep a little extra hour. Ah, you don't need to meditate every day. It's not that important. As a real Zen, the Zen master comes and whacks you with a stick. <laughs> and says, wake up. We need more of that in our culture. <laughs> if, if, you, if you have an alcoholic friend who, who says, I need another drink, strong compassion says no. 
And then, you know, we liberals, progressives, think, well, I'm not supposed to impose my views on somebody else. Giving him a drink would be showing compassion, right? And the answer is absolutely not. Real compassion includes wisdom. So it makes judgments of care and concern. And it says some things are good and some things are bad. And I think the shortcoming of many progressives is that we want to play nice. We don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, you know. And I'm not saying that we should be mean. There is such a thing in spiral dynamics that's called mean green, you know, people who, you know them. <laughs> I'm just saying that the building is burning down. We have, we have to set you, you have to yell fire. We need to be defeated by greater compassion. One of the things, and this is where we'll close, is that really struck me is also losing self-judgment and fear of failure. And that may be the greatest area for growing compassion and love is first for ourselves. There's another poem to close with. It's a bit like a prayer. I love this man, uh, Pandre Gotuoma. He has a, a, a podcast called Poetry Unbound that's through the On Being website with Krista Tippett. And he's a, an Irish poet, peace activist, and theologian. And I want you as, so the visuals are gonna play behind me, go ahead. And I want you to notice how he's written the title. it we'll just let him read it um but first notice how he has is it muted now okay thanks um how he writes the title when, when it comes up we can't see it it's on the screen oh got it okay <laughs> he crosses out the word belong to write how to be alone and we see in that it all begins with knowing nothing lasts forever, so you might as well start packing now. In the meantime, practice being alive. There will be a party where you'll feel like nobody's paying you attention. And there will be a party where attention's all you'll get. What you need to do is to remember to talk to yourself between these parties. And again, there will be a day a decade where you won't fit in with your body even though you're in the only body you're in you need to control your habit of forgetting to breathe remember when you were younger and you practiced kissing on your arm you were onto something then sometimes harm knows its own healing comfort knows its own intelligence kindness too it needs no reason there is a you telling you another story of you. Listen to her. Where do you feel anxiety in your body? The chest, the fist, the dream before waking, the head that feels like it's at the top of the swing or the clutch of gut like falling and falling and falling and falling. It knows something. You're dying. Try to stay alive. 
For now, touch yourself. I'm serious. Touch yourself. Take your hand and place your hand someplace upon your body and listen to the community of madness that you are. You are such an interesting conversation. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch yourself, and I'll see you here next week. <laughs>